Welcome, everybody, to episode 32 of Generation Jihad. I'm Tom Jocelyn. I'm joined, as always, by my colleague, Bill Rojo. Bill, say hi to the audience. Hello, everyone. We are senior fellows at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies and the editors of FDD's Long War Journal. This week, we are honored to be joined by H.R. McMaster. He's our special guest this week. He was, of course, the National Security Advisor for President Trump from early 2017 to the spring of 2018. He is probably best known for that role, but he has a long record of service to his country before then. He graduated from West Point, led troops in combat during multiple tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. He served during the first Gulf War and during the post-9-11 wars, and eventually became a three-star general. In addition to being a soldier, he is a scholar. He is the author of Dereliction of Duty, a deeply researched book that looks at the failures of leadership and decision-making during the Vietnam War. Bill, I know you and I are big fans of that book long before we met General McMaster. Hopefully we can talk a little bit about that today. Absolutely. And most recently, he's the author of Battlegrounds, The Fight to Defend the Free World. Uh, General McMaster decided to take on every possible national security challenge America faces today in one book. We'll talk about what possessed him to do that. Uh, And he is the chairman of the Board of Advisors at the Center on Military and Political Power at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, which, of course, also employs us. General, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Tom. Great to be with you and Bill. Thanks for this podcast and what you do to to inform Americans about the challenges we face. It's a real privilege to be with you. No, no, the honor is all ours. You know, before we dive into sort of the nerdy details, the wonky stuff and policy stuff, uh, let's get into a little bit about your background. You're a Philly guy like Bill, aren't you? I am, right there at the center of the universe, right there in Philadelphia. Absolutely. That make you an Eagles fan like Bill then? Does it mean I got two Eagles fans and, and myself? Hey, I mean, season tickets in our family for the Eagles, you know, going back to the 30s, you know, so, you know, tailgates are a two meal event with uh, with my cousin and his RV that he brings. I mean, yeah, we're I say we qualify as Eagles fans and, and my hero of all time is obviously Chuck Denera, who I actually got to know uh, when I was young, when I was a child and corresponded with him off and on until he passed away, sadly, a few years ago. Yeah, Concrete Charlie, definitely a classic eagle. Uh, absolutely great taste. That's that's oh, his passing was sad. Um, well, actually, you know, the Eagles, uh, just so our listeners know, the Eagles are sort of the bane of my existence because I am the lone Giants fan on this <laughs> podcast, being a New Yorker. I come from a long family of Giants fans. My father, uh, the last game of his life was Super Bowl Forty Two against the Patriots, and he, he used to say to us as kids, boys, there's only two things I want from you in this world. One, don't ever root for the Dallas Cowboys, and two – don't do drugs. And then he would say, and not necessarily in that order, you know, so, so, so. as Philly fans, Tom, uh, we, we can well, understand you know, that. One, well. one of my mom, one of my mom's uh, my brothers, you know, moved to this other country called New Jersey <laughs> and then moved into Northern Jersey and they became Giants fans. It was really, I mean, they were, it was, it was at risk of, of ostracizing uh, that, that, that branch of the family. But, uh, but we come together periodically The Rangers fans too, you know, and, yeah. Oh, I'm a Rangers fan as well, though we we were turning the corner there now. But let's not get into my suffering as a sports fan of the moment. Uh, you know, you guys uh, looks like you guys are going to win the division here in the NFC East this year by default. Bill, you want to get into a little bit of uh, the general's background a little bit? Yeah, sure. And and by the way, as Homer Simpson said, uh, the the two greatest words in the English language are default. And I think that's where our Eagles will be this year, I hope, anyway. If not, they really are the bottom of the basement. And, Tom, you know, I, look, I, I've known you for a long time, and I, I have tolerated you even as being a Giants fan. I don't hold it against you. General, what year did you graduate West Point? 1984. And how, how did you do there? Where did you graduate in your class? 
Well, I was, you know, I, I was okay academically, but I was, I was misunderstood and a victim of circumstance uh, sometimes from the, uh, from the perspective of the commandant and the, you know, the disciplinary aspect of being a cadet. But, but uh, I, I made, I made it through, you know, and and uh, and I was commissioned in, in aviation, uh, but then, but then uh, found astigmatism mind, and I became an armor officer. Armor, excellent. Yes, and you know, look. Um, for those of you who are not familiar with the general's career, um, one of his, you know, in the, the first Gulf War, Battle of 73 um, Easting, uh, you certainly, you know, you commanded Eagle Troop. Am I correct? Is, is that right? That's right. Yeah. So you took on Saddam Hussein's army to took on basically what, two brigades of the uh, Republican guards during that battle. Can you can you tell us about that? Tell us just a little bit. How did that feel? What was that like leading man? You were a captain, right? A troop, troop captain. Um, how, what did you think of the Iraqi army? Just give me, give us a little flavor of what that, what it was like to go to battle, go to battle against the Iraqis. And then we had to do it, what, uh, another decade later. And then we fought an insurgency there. It's, uh, you know, the, your history in Iraq is long. Well, you know, I'm, I'm really proud of what our, our cavalry troop achieved there. You know, a, a, you know, a military unit takes on the quality of a family, you know, under shared hardships and tough training and, and then certainly in combat. And the key is to is to train hard and and to demand the highest standards of a unit so that they're ready for, for war and that they have the confidence, right? Confidence in their weapon systems and ability to fight um, as individual soldiers, but really confidence as a team. And, and our team really, uh, I think, was extraordinary. And and we did have a high degree of, of confidence. And on the 26th of February of 1991, we were at you know the, the so-called tip of the spear as we were part of the envelopment attack against the Republican Guard with the mission of, of destroying the Republican Guard and then continuing the attack into Kuwait uh, to free to free Kuwait, uh, turn Kuwait back to the Kuwaitis, right? Saddam had invaded the previous August and declared Kuwait its 19th province. And so um, it was a, the day that we were moving uh, toward the Republican Guard defenses. Uh, you know, the day started, you know, I mean, it was pouring rain all night. I mean, you know, it's desert. I was like, this is a desert. Like, why are we all so <laughs> in the rain all the time? Uh, but the next morning, uh, fog set in really heavy fog because of the rain. But then as the fog dissipated, the wind kicked up and then we're in a, in a, in a, in a sandstorm. And so, you know, you, visibility was limited. Our helicopters were grounded and our cavalry troop, uh, along with uh, G troop uh, of the, of the second armored cavalry regiment, second squadron, second armored cavalry regiment, uh, were moving toward, uh, toward the East, toward these Republican guard defenses. And our regiment, you know, our regiment was trying to control our movement because our job as a scout unit or reconnaissance unit, now, you know, a pretty powerful one. I mean, our cavalry troop had nine Abrams tanks and 12 Bradleys and mortars, you know, but but our job was to find the enemy, find where the enemy was weak, find where the enemy strong, isolate strength and then and then pull the heavy divisions behind us into battle under advantageous conditions. Well, you know, we had some initial contact around the six, seven north-south grid line, some some uh, reconnaissance elements, which we destroyed uh, pretty quickly. Uh, and then and then we got permission to continue our movement to the seven zero easting. I was a little bit frustrated by the the halting nature of our movement, but I just I just got a sense in my gut, Bill. Hey, man, we're about to run into something here. So so um, I made the decision to change our formation to take the Bradleys, the scout platoons and tuck them in behind the tanks. And then our, our tanks move forward in a nine tank wedge with my tank at the center of that wedge, one tank platoon in echelon to my right, one in echelon to my left. And what we didn't realize is that we we were crossing a very subtle ridge line. I mean, it was so subtle that when you looked out, it looked like just flat terrain. 
But as my tank came over that ridge line, I, I saw immediately eight uh, enemy tanks and dug in defensive positions right to my front at, you know, what is kind of knife fight range for tanks, you know, about a thousand meters. And, uh, and uh, two of those tanks engaged my tank and, and, and missed as we, we began to, to engage. Uh, also, our scout platoon uh, on the, to the far north picked up a hot spot of, of an enemy vehicle, engaged that with a tow and a tank missile. The, bat, the battle started. And then we went into an assault against this enemy. Uh, our tank crew destroyed the first three tanks in about 10 seconds and then, uh, and then assaulted through a minefield. And then as the other eight tanks came over, they all engaged different targets. We trained this way. It's called fire distribution, right? And, and, uh, and so we took out a huge part of the enemy quickly, which gave us a physical advantage, but it also gave us a tremendous psychological advantage, right? Because now you have these, you know, 60-ton tank, you know, killing machines coming after it, coming at you, right? And, and uh, it was at that point where my executive officer called me and said, hey, you're, you're, you're at the limit of advance. I said, hey, just tell them we can't stop. I mean, I'm sorry. We have to, you know, it's like if it's in a boxing match, you land your jab. The right, you got to follow with the right, you know. And so, so we continued the assault for about uh, three and a half kilometers, and uh, and and we stopped after another ridge line. Uh, it was, I think, it was fortunate that we continued to attack. Uh, you know, the the enemy, as as a result, couldn't recover uh, from the initial blows. We entered their reserve position on top of the second ridge line, about four kilometers later, and destroyed 17 additional uh, T-72 tanks. Overall, our, our troop was able to destroy, you know, uh, over 50 armored vehicles, close to 60 armored vehicles, um, and then and then um, and then we stopped, you know, when when we had nothing left to shoot, essentially, and and it took 23 minutes. And there was still sporadic contact through the night into the next morning. We took large numbers of prisoners that night. The battle wasn't over. Uh, but but um, but we were we were very fortunate to 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 really experience a lopsided victory, uh, and suffer no casualties our, our, ourselves. So extremely proud of our, our troopers, you know. And I've been talking to our troops afterwards, and I wrote this in an account that I wrote like the next day. I wrote an account on a legal pad, you know, just, just remember it, and it's published on the Fort Benning website, I think. But but you know, I I, you know, I recall. Um, you know, just talking to our soldiers afterwards. And they said, you know, it just kind of came natural to us. And thank God we did all this hard training, you know, it really paid off. And, and so, um, you know, that, that was our experience in, in battle in, in Iraq. And then we wound up, we wound up in, in or of the Chaldees, Abraham's birthplace, right by Talil Air Base. And, and it was there that, you know, our, our cavalry troop was astride, you know, the six lane highway that leads to Baghdad, but then became route Tampa. Right. And, and there's a sign, you know, Baghdad, X number of kilometers. I'm like, wait, why don't we just go to Baghdad? You know, it's, that's where Saddam is. Why don't we just finish the job? And then as I, I, I met with Iraqis and different sheikhs in the, in, the, in the tribal areas of the south, I realized how fragmented and fractious Iraqi society had become. And I start, started to think about it and, and thought, you know, if we get rid of Saddam, you know, it's, it's not going to get rid of the violence. There's probably going to be an insurgency associated with the Ba'ath Party. And then and then all, obviously getting rid of Saddam, how do we forge a, a government that, that comes after? It's going to be complicated. And, and Bill, you know, I, when I came back from from Iraq, I wrote an op-ed for the Philadelphia Inquirer. You know? And the title was Why the U.S. Was Right in not taking over all of Iraq. And the and the reason the reason that, that I gave was that hey, it would be a it would be a, a long-term commitment with probably no end in sight and no guarantee of success. Right. And uh and of course, you know, that's you know, that, that's the situation we 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 uh, found ourselves in after 2003. But you know, I I I think that we debate the wrong question about 2003. Like we always debate, hey, should we have done it? 
I think we should debate who the heck thought it would be easy and why did they think it would be easy? And that's the story I I try to tell in battlegrounds is a story of not really being prepared for the need to consolidate military gains and get to a sustainable political outcome in yeah, Iraq. Absolutely. And General, I, I had enlisted in, um, I believe it was in January of 1991. So I was actually in either basic training or AIT when you guys went in. So, but uh, the, the, the second armor cavalry regiment there, your, your uh, actions were, were legendary within the military. People were talking about that for, for years while I was in. So I appreciate that. Appreciate you sharing that story. It's just fantastic. And you're right. I mean, our, our troops train better than anyone. And for whatever faults we may have, our enemy's faults are, are legion. Um, and we, we, we overcome it with, with fantastic training. And, and just, you know, just how courageous our troopers were, you know, I, you know, uh, our, you know, a driver is a, a tank driver. That's a tough spot to be in because right? yeah. you're not actively shooting at the enemy. Actually shooting at the enemy is, is a great comfort psychologically. Right? You're, you're engaged in that, in that fight, but your driver's just looking at this large enemy formation and driving toward it, driving through a minefield. And, you know, my driver, Chris Hedenskog, you know, and, but all the drivers in the, and the troop just were, and, and all of the soldiers, you know, they didn't hesitate. They did their, they did their duty and they, they performed, I think with, with great courage and, and distinction in that fight. I was just proud to be one member of that team. You know, I don't want to get too ahead of ourselves here on our little outline, but you know, we kind of freestyle a little bit on our podcast. So you said something I think is worth exploring a little bit here, which is, you know, you saw early on the potential for insurgency to engulf Iraq. Um, of course that led to what's now, widely decried as these endless wars. It's one of one of the wars. It's part of the sort of the endless wars mantra. Um, you know, some of that, you know, we've talked about a lot on this podcast and some of that's because of American missteps, like the removal of Saddam. Other factors are because the enemy gets a vote and because a lot of these situations are complicated and it's not it's not clear cut all, all every time. You know, there's definitely a rising sort of course. People just want to pin all the blame on the U.S. now for, for all these uh, sort of ills. But, um, you know, I was wondering if you could explore a little bit, you know, what you're talking about when, when you talk about this tank battle, you have a moment of decisive sort of Jacksonian victory, which seems to be there's one current of the American psyche that sort of desires that sort of Jacksonian sort of moment to say, hey, aha, we won. We defeated you. Now we can go home. And it seems to me that what part of the, a big part of the problem we face in the post 9-11 conflicts is that we we entered a number of or a couple different conflicts that you're not going to have that Jacksonian moment. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to the sort of how you how you see that or how you view that or if you think I'm off base or, you know, what what your views are on that. No, Tom, I, I think you're really hitting an important point here. And I think what happened is we learned the wrong lessons from the 1991 Gulf mm-hmm. War and those lopsided victories. Right. So that in the in the introduction of battlegrounds, I talk about the, the you know, the, the opportunity I had as a, as a as a as a captain in our army to witness the end of the Cold War. Right. Our, our cavalry regiment was patrolling the East German, West German and and, uh, and and the West German Czechoslovakian border when East Germany lifted travel restrictions to the West. And so we saw the Iron Curtain part that, you know, the wall came down, the, the East German government faded away, the Soviet Union collapsed, right? We won the Cold War. And then after that, we, we won the Gulf War in a, in, a, in a decisive military victory over, over the fourth largest army in the world. I think what happened is that bolstered our confidence and that confidence became overconfidence and led to complacency, complacency based, I think, on three overlapping assumptions about this post-Cold War world. First among them was that 
you know, that, that an arc of history had guaranteed the primacy of our free and open societies over closed authoritarian systems. And secondly, you know, that great power competition was a, was a relic of the past. And third, and this is really associated more with the Gulf War, that our technological military prowess would guarantee our security. And if any force had the temerity to, uh, to challenge us, that war would be waged quickly, you know, decisively, efficiently, and mainly from standoff range, right? And and then, of course, that was a setup, right? It was all a setup, a setup in, in part uh, for uh, the strategic shock of 9-11, uh, when, when a brutal, determined enemy used box cutters and airplanes to commit the most devastating terrorist attack in history, bypassing right our, our technological military prowess. Tom, I think today you see a lot of these same kind of assumptions about future war gaining traction again, right? And and so, of course, the Gulf War, it was the Gulf War was it was a lopsided outcome for two reasons. First of all, his army fought hard, uh, but they were they were not a capable force because they were they were stuck in the war between 1980 and 1988 with the Iranians. Right. They weren't ready for an armored cavalry troop. I mean, they it, it blew their minds, you know, in terms of time space relationships and, and and the way that they set up their defense and so forth. But the, but the second reason was a narrowly circumscribed political objective. Hey, give Kuwait back to the Kuwaitis. That was it. Right now, we had to contain Saddam after that. So there, people forget there was a sustained commitment there. But I think what that led is to it led to this idea of easy war, right? A small footprint military operations. And we forgot, hey, the consolidation of gains in war. It's not a optional phase, right? It's something we've always had to do. And as my friend and historian Conrad Crane often says, is we have never been able to never do it again. And so what's happening, sadly, I think with the ending endless wars mantra is we're perpetuating uh, the, the same sets of flawed assumptions that complicated our efforts in both places, both in Afghanistan and in Iraq. And this this idea, you know, that, that you can take essentially the George Costanza approach to war and just leave on a high note. I mean, it doesn't work that way. Yeah, General, you know, one thing, you know, it's we're we're just unwilling to see these these conflicts through by not pursuing real victory on the battlefield, by leaving an enemy in the field, in the case leaving Saddam, we set ourselves up. I mean, that we're, we're by taking half measures, we're extending these conflicts. And we just, we don't fight, you know, limited objectives of Iraq had a snowball effect for two, dec- two decades to the U.S. invasion and, and overconfidence, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, obviously, I don't have to explain this to you. I just, I find that, you know, that we've lost that mindset from a political leadership standpoint that we're not willing to, you know, we're, we're willing to fight for poli- limited political objectives and think that we're going to actually win in the end when we have enemies that are, are willing to fight us unconventionally that are willing to, f- to fight extended wars when our political, our, um, you know, our, our uh, civilian base does, isn't really willing to do that. They don't want to fight extended wars. Yeah. And, and you know, and we're, f- we're fighting wars based on the wars we would prefer to fight rather right. than what the situation demands. And so our strategies in wartime are based on fundamentally flawed assumptions, many of which are implicit and therefore go unchallenged. Right. And, and, uh, and this is what, what you and, uh, you, Bill, and, and Tom have done such a great job on is pulling the curtain back, you know, and showing people, hey, this is the real nature of this enemy. And so, for example, in in, in Afghanistan, you know, we've conjured the enemy we would prefer to fight. Yeah. 
uh, and 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 uh, and assume that you know that, that the Taliban is is uh, is distinct and and uh, and there's a bold line between the Taliban and jihadist terrorists. When in fact they're 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 absolutely intertwined uh, and inseparable uh, in, in in many ways. And so I you know I think that this is our tendency to define the world you know and the wars as we would like them to be, and that's what lengthens these wars, right? It's the short term mentality that lengthens and complicates the wars and, and, and increases the costs associated with them. And, and I think that we haven't been able to shake it. And what, you know, what the American people deserve to know, they deserve to know, okay, what is at stake, right? What is at stake in this war? And the second thing they need to know is what is the strategy? What is the strategy that will deliver an outcome favorable uh, to, to, to our interests at, at a cost that's acceptable? And, you know, I think our leaders have failed across multiple administrations to tell the American people uh, what, are, was it, what is at stake and hey, what, what is the strategy that's going to deliver an outcome at an acceptable cost. And what frustrated me and one of the one of the motivating factors to, to, to write battlegrounds was that, you know, in, in places like Afghanistan, Iraq, I was on the receiving end of these strategies that were based on fantasy in Washington rather than the reality on on the ground. And and I wanted to write a book that explained why that happens. And and the reason that, 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 uh, that I offer in, in the book is a strategic narcissism, right? The tendency to define the world as we would like it to be, and then assume that, that whatever we do, whether, whether it's to act or decide not to act is going to be, is going to be decisive to achieving a, a favorable outcome. And of course, no, Sun Tzu would have told us there's a problem with that, right? Because you have to you have to consider your enemy as, as well. And so I, I think that that it is this 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 high degree of incompetence strategically that has been has been the lodestone around our necks, you know. And and uh, and so the the argument of the book is to to improve our strategic competence by first applying it with the historian. Zachary Shore calls strategic empathy, right? To to view these complex challenges from the perspective of the other, and in particular, you know, our enemies, our rivals, and, and our and our adversaries. We haven't done that, you know. We haven't done that. We didn't do that in 2003 enough in Iraq. We didn't do that in 2001 enough in, in Afghanistan. We certainly didn't do it in December 2011 when Vice President Biden called up President Obama and said, "Thank you for allowing me to end this goddamn war." Well, hey, you know, newsflash, man, wars don't end when one side disengages, right? And then we found that out the hard way uh, when, when less than three years later, ISIS is in control of territory the size of Great Britain and has created a humanitarian, maybe the largest humanitarian catastrophe since the end of World War II, right? And and um, you know, and we we uh, we learned it again. We should have learned it again. Libya, right, where where the Obama administration, in its effort to avoid what it perceived as the mistakes of the Bush administration, actually exceeded those mistakes by intervening with you know bombs, not boots, and then doing nothing to shape the political outcome on the on the back end, right? And and look at Libya now; it's still it's still an an utter it's an utter catastrophe, right? And it's the Biggest transit point for refugees coming out of the G5 Sahel, and it's been enmeshed in conflict since since to early 2011. So I, I just think, you know, we, we're learning the wrong lessons, uh, Bill and Tom, and you know, you, you both of you have been a strong voice to, for administering a corrective to these assumptions. But I think, you know, the ending endless wars mantra is is, is prevalent these days. Yeah, I mean, you know, look, I. <laughs> We struggle with this because, you know, if you read Long War Journal through the years, you know, we've been critical of exactly what you said. I mean, you just gave a lot of criticisms yourself that, that, that match our criticisms. You know, I mean, it's sort of, 
you know, if you're, you know, you, we're going to get into Afghanistan in a few minutes, of course, and um, we'll probably trigger some Taliban apologists with that conversation, but that's, that's what we do. Uh, in any event, you know, when, when you look at sort of the whole history of this, it's very difficult to justify U.S. interventionism abroad when you see the missteps and the problems that have been caused by these, these wars. I mean, I can't defend the Iraq war, the decision in March 2003 to go over war with the Saddam Hussein's regime. I mean, I, you know, it's opened up a can of problems, you know, um, the Afghan war is different uh, because that was a different set of circumstances. I think those two are lumped together now, you know, um, and you brought up Libya. You know, we had an earlier episode of this podcast with the CIA officer who actually um, Sarah Carlson who actually orchestrated the evacuation of the U.S. from uh, Libya. And, you know, she 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 offers a critique that we the bill and I share, which is a lot of times the U.S. officials in Washington and elsewhere can't tell the good guys from the bad guys, and they get all confused about who they're even looking at. You know, in Libya, you know, you had basically American diplomats wanting to side with extremists in Libya, you know, or work with extremists in Libya. It just didn't make any sense, you know. And we see that same confusion is, of course, set in with regard to the Taliban, uh, which we'll, we'll 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 talk about. But this all leads to sort of a, you know, I I, I recall something I heard you say once, General, which is sort of what I, I sort of have how I kind of frame this in my own mind, which is. That, you know, the Bush administration basically overstepped, tried to do too much and went too far in one direction. And then the Obama administration came in running against those policies. And basically the corrective was to try and go too far in the other direction. Um, and it was sort of the, the, the point now of steering foreign policy for the United States of America is to find sort of a more balanced sort of approach that's not trying to do too much, but at the same time is not giving up America's position or interests or power in the world, you know, and I think that's a very difficult balancing act. And I don't want to get into it all right yet, but there's some passages and battlegrounds I thought that were very illuminating, I thought, in terms of how to think about that. But I was wondering if, you know, when you look at today, as we go forward, we're at the end of 2020 here. What do you think about the, the, the future here in terms of steering foreign policy from that perspective and trying to sort of strike that balance? Well, I think it comes down to this this idea of strategic competence and in particular paying attention to the fact that others have a say in the future course of events, right? And and I, I do think that the it's a fair criticism of the George W. Bush administration to say that that that, that some of the leaders within that administration undervalued or underestimated the risks and costs of action. Whereas in the Obama years, that that many of the leaders in that administration underestimated the risks and costs of inaction. And so I think what's immensely important is to, to frame and understand these complex challenges as the first step. Then the second step is the inventory. Okay, what is the so what? Why do we care? What vital interests are at stake? How's, how does this problem set abroad affect our security, affect our prosperity at, at home? And then, and then after you do that, you're in a, in, in a position where you can you can you you can articulate a, 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 a long term goal and more specific objectives. But the step you have to take next, I mean, is really important, which is to understand limitations on the degree to which you can exercise agency or influence or control, you know, over over that over that situation. And when I say you being able to do that, it's really it's really the United States and like-minded partners working together, right, to to overcome that challenge to our security and and prosperity. And I don't think that's just logical sequence or of, of how to think about complex problems. It's largely absent in government. And what happens is we don't define the problem well. We don't take time to think about the nature of the enemy. Tom, you've written so much about this, and Bill, about you know we don't understand who we're fighting in Afghanistan, right? I mean, how many Americans all, all these years later. 
all these two decades later still don't get it. You can, you can still get asked people basic questions and they get, they don't know, they don't know the answers, you know? I mean, can you imagine this world war two? Yeah. Hey, who we're fighting at? I forgot, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's really, it's so self-referential. Right. And, and if you're self-referential in war, you know, you're going to get your ass kicked, right? Because your enemy is going to continue to adapt and fight you in asymmetric ways. And, and really what you have to do is you have to be able to defeat the enemy. How about that for like an old school idea? You know, and and when you go to war, you don't go to war just you know to to you know j- just to, uh, to to experience it, right? In fact, for a war to be just, for a war to meet St. Thomas Aquinas's uh, you know uh, Jews uh, at Bellum uh, theory, you have to have a just end in mind, right? And we haven't defined clearly what our objectives are, and then marshaled all of our efforts to be able to accomplish those objectives. And I would say that in Afghanistan, what that requires is defeating the Taliban, which means convincing the Taliban they cannot accomplish their objectives with the use of violence. We never did that. And in fact, during the Obama years, we, 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 no, we no longer had them as a designated enemy. So they're killing our soldiers. They're committing mass murder against Afghans and we can't even target them. And that's the situation we're in again now. This is why, you know, we see this an, an unchecked offensive in large measure in, in Helmand province and coast. This is why you see the continuation of these mass murder attacks, most recently at the American University of Afghanistan or in a maternity hospital. I mean, so we, we don't acknowledge the nature of, of our enemy. We don't we don't understand our enemy. And then we don't make it our objective to win. Right. And to win. And if you're not trying to win in war, uh, I, I would say that not only is that unwise, right, because it gives your enemy the opportunity uh, to continue to adapt uh, and and uh, and and uh, and to you know to impose costs on, on you, uh, but it's also it's also unjust, I think, uh, to do it, unethical to do it. Yeah, General, you, uh, I've never actually written about this or, or stated this publicly. Tom will know. I mean, I've argued for years that I, I feel like. Our, the way we fight war, or, or it's been immoral, and not for the reasons that people in the anti-war camp would would say, but for the re- exact reasons that you're 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 making here, it's immoral because the way we're fighting them, we're not fighting them to win, which extends these wars, which destroys society with long-term war. Um, it, it keeps the enemy in the field. It keeps them, and it escalates. Afghanistan's the perfect case. It is a country with zero. It, after four decades of war, us being involved in nineteen of them. It's it's a country with zero infrastructure at this point, and we are complicit in this by allowing the Taliban to hang in this fight, and it that's what bothers me. That's what makes it difficult for me to advocate getting involved in the next country, not because – you know, it, uh, believe me, I understand our interests. I understand that we have enemies, but when we're fighting immorally, I, I have some serious, serious concerns uh, about getting involved. Well, and, and you know, it's, it, it has to do with competence and, and, and uh, as well, because it relates, right? It relates to, to being able to, to pursue a just end and to, and to meet you know, the, the requirements of, of uh, ethical requirements of just war theory. No, I think it's, as I mentioned, it's like we don't frame the problem, right? You know, we don't, the, the problem of the war properly. We don't, we don't understand the enemy. And then, and then as a result, you know, we base our plans and our strategies on the enemy that we pr- would prefer to, to fight. 
uh, we, we engage in a range of activities, but don't understand how those military activities in particular are equating to progress toward accomplishing really what is a sustainable political outcome. In Afghanistan, what's been striking is not only the short-term approach to a long-term problem and the fact that, you know, it's not a 19-year-long war. It's a one-year war fought 19 yeah, times right. over, right? And, and I, you know, we, we talked about this, Tom, around the, the, the time of the development of the South Asia strategy when I was national security advisor. I think the only time in Afghanistan where we had a, 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 a sound policy and strategy in place that could be executed at a cost acceptable to the American people was from 2017 uh, to, to 2000, into 2018. And this was the president's announcement of the South Asia strategy in, in August of 2017. But other than that, we haven't stuck to any approach. And we've gone from a series of flawed assumptions to a series of flawed assumptions under the short-term mentality, uh, but, but then also just a misunderstanding of, of the nature of the problem there. And what's bad about this, okay? What's bad about this is not only does it give your enemies the opportunities, right? And we told the Taliban the whole time, hey, we're leaving, we're leaving. We tell the Afghan government, we're leaving. And so when you tell them you're leaving, you forget, you know, where is a contest of wills? So the Taliban, all that does is bolster their will. But what happens to Afghans? Afghans look over their shoulder. Who's got my back? Nobody. You're leaving. Okay. Hey, I need to make cut some deals. Cut some deals with with warlords and criminalized patronage networks, so I can hedge my bets to make sure that you know I'm in a place of relative advantage if the situation devolves back to the civil war period of 1992 to 96, for example. So you you encourage activity on your on the part of your, of your friends that that is destructive as well. And of course, neutrals are they're just not going to commit one way or the other because they're going to ride it out. They don't know what's going to happen. That's what's happened in Afghanistan. You know, we forgot, you know, we forgot that war is an extension of politics, right? Clausewitz was, was right about that. You know? And, and uh, we forgot that war is human, that, that uh, the people fight for the same reasons Thucydides identified 2,500 years ago, fear, honor, and interest. We forget that war is uncertain because of its interactive nature and the fact that the enemy has a say in the, in the future course of events. And if you give them this, your script, you know, and tell them, hey, this is my timetable for withdrawal of troops. This is what I'm going to do, what I'm not going to do. Then that gives them that gives them the opportunity to control the future course of events. They're not going to adhere to, to the script that we give them. And then finally, of course, war is a contest of wills. And what we've done over the years is we have bolstered the will of, of the Taliban. We've diminished the will of, of, of our partners. And, and uh, you know, I think if the great captains of history were to come back and 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 uh, and look at how we've waged these wars. They would think we're we're, we're incompetent or or you know insane or both. Let's you know we got we got to head here to the Afghan part. But I knew with the three of us that that would probably happen. So uh, it's it's okay. We'll, we'll go we'll go forward with it. You know. So you so you, you're as national security advisor in 2017. You you shepherded sort of a new review of the, the Afghan war. You sent in place number of policies. Of course, President Trump gives a speech on August 21st, 2017, announcing the new South Asia strategy. Um, but, you know, just over a year later, it's obvious that that strategy was abandoned by the administration where, you know, the president and State Department sort of start pushing ahead with this idea that we're now going to, you know, negotiate with the Taliban and reach some sort of accord with them. Um, Bill and I, as you know, have been very critical of that whole process because we think it, it's an example of exactly what you say of trying of strategic narcissism of viewing the Taliban as we want to view the Taliban and basically whitewashing them and sort of making things up in order to justify our policy desires. But you know, 
from our perspective, the thing we struggle with is that, you know, now obviously we seem to be at the end of the American process here, you know, uh, that in fact, you know, that, you know, listen, the people who are critical of the war. They have legitimate gripes as we've come up with. I mean, I think you've given them plenty of legitimate reasons to criticize the war effort, you know, uh, Bill and I certainly have as well. I think what separates us is we're not exactly eager to see the Taliban and Al-Qaeda, which they remain allied with today, take over Kabul or take over the country and start exploring terrorism, which is exactly what they're going to do, um, or at least try to do in terms of ca- conquering ground. What do you think now about going forward, You know, whether it's a Biden administration? I think that there's no appetite really for the U.S. anymore staying in Afghanistan, or very little uh, to no appetite. And is there anything that can be done to basically prop up the Afghan government as America continues to draw down, or is the fate complete? Yeah. I think there's a lot that could be done, but I think what we would have to do is, is redesignate the Taliban as an enemy force and go after them actively. You know, so it just shows you how crazy the situation's become with this massive offensive helmet that's causing you know a huge displaced person refugee crisis there. Uh, so the Taliban can gain control of the narcotics trade and rake in billions of dollars, so they can use those billions of dollars to finance more mass murder attacks against us. Right? That's what's happening. Well, I, I think that. You know, that, that they, were, they were complaining that, hey, you know, you guys are bombing, you, you're conducting airstrikes in support of, of Afghan security forces. And we, we, we would have to have a change of policy to declare the Afghan enemy again. And I, I think that that's possible that we could generate the will to do that. I think what's important about Afghanistan to recognize is that it was at a sustainable level of commitment. I mean, you know, at the time that we started the drawdown, I think it was 11,500 soldiers. I mean, that is a that is a, a really minuscule number of soldiers. And whereas we are, our brave soldiers uh, are, are still making sacrifices, we we lost uh, ten uh, of, of our of our courageous soldiers this year in, in Afghanistan. But hey, you know, thirty Afghan soldiers and police give their lives every day, right, to, to to hold on to the freedoms that they've enjoyed since two thousand and one. And I think that's worth supporting, right? And and that sustainable level of commitment that was going down to like eight thousand troops and probably about. You know, the goal is about 15 billion total a year. That was sustainable, especially, especially when you compare it to the cost of withdrawal. That's what nobody does, right? So, so withdrawal looks like, hey, this is a great way to to save money, save lives, and but and and they also cast it as a way to improve our security. Well, no, it's not going to improve our security because our enemies have agency over the future as as well, right? And and uh, and so, what's going to happen? Tom, I mean, who knows how bad the humanitarian catastrophe is going to be, but it's already bad. Where do those refugees go? Hey, they're going to initially go mainly to Pakistan. What's in Pakistan? A, a, ter- a global jihadist terrorist, you know, ecosystem, right? Uh, that in which these groups, you know, share resources, expertise. That's a great recruiting, you know, pool are, are, are from the refugees. And by the way, they could destabilize Pakistan further, a country that has nuclear weapons, and we're not all that confident about how secure the nuclear weapons are, right? So that's kind of bad. Imagine these terrorist organizations having access to the most destructive weapons on Earth. That seems like a high-stakes game to me. And then what happens psychologically, not only physically to the Afghan people, who, by the way, re- refugees uh, will also go to Europe and, and be on a scale that rivals those that, that went into Europe uh, during the Syrian civil war. In fact, Afghans Afghanistan was the, the, the second largest source of refugees, even during the height of the Syrian civil war. Uh, but then but then what happens psychologically, Tom, you know, when they when the, the black flag of the of the Islamic Emirates of Afghanistan is flying over Kabul and they say, hey, look, you know, we just we just defeated the world's greatest superpower, which is, by the way, what they're saying. 
to our Afghan friends in Doha right. right now. Yeah, when there, they should have some yeah. from them, they're saying, hey, what are we even talking to you for? We already defeated the world's greatest superpower, right? So so I, I'll tell you, I, I think this is immensely short-sighted, uh, this this withdrawal. And, and you know what? It's going to make us a lot less safe, man. I mean, you know, and when you talk to these, you know, the retrenchers or the offshore balancers. Oh, uh, yeah. You've just you've just triggered all of them, by the way, with your conversation. Yes, you've triggered all of them. Yeah. No, you'll see it. You'll see you'll see a commentary. We see all the commentary, you know, H.R. McMaster, warmonger for Afghanistan for wanting to, you know, for God forbid, he wants to fight the jihadis, you know, so. Or, or, or you know, and prevent another 9-11. Right. It's yeah. not a theoretical case. Right. Look at the other threats that have emerged from that region. The attempted Times Square bomber. Why couldn't he get his act together? Because he was dodging our forces in the the region when he was in Pakistan, right? I mean, I I think that these are the stories the American people don't know. They don't understand what is is at stake. And that's why we haven't been able to sustain the will. I don't blame, actually, I don't blame the retractors. I don't blame the American people saying, and and let's worse, because our leaders have failed to explain to them what is at stake and what is the strategy that will will keep us safe at, at an acceptable cost, right? And and um, and that's that's what we're missing is I mean you know it's we're missing leadership is what we're is what we're missing in in, the, in this fight. I think you've been tapping into Tom and I's phone conversation for the last couple of years. This is what we've been saying for years and years and years now, but we're not surprised you share an opinion. Uh, real quick uh, question here on the so uh, Joe Biden has said that um, he'd keep a small counterterrorism force. We obviously don't know what that would look like, but what do you think the effective effectiveness of that would be? in Afghanistan when the Taliban are running wild and taking over territory. It's, it's just not feasible, right? It's just not feasible. This, I mean, this over the horizon, small CT force, right? Everybody's enamored uh, with your know, special operations force capabilities, which yeah. uh, we should be enamored with them. They're amazing. I mean, they're incredibly capable. They've been keeping us safe by, you know, by going after nodes and in, in enemy networks. But if you don't have access, right, if you don't have access to the intelligence collection platforms, which includes people, human intelligence, mm-hmm. if you don't have the bases that give you that reach, you know, it, by the way, in a landlocked country, you know where you are? You're back to 1998. You're back to 1998 after Al-Qaeda had already bombed the World Trade Center for the first time in 1994 and after they attacked our embassies. You are at, you're actually arguing for the Bill Clinton counterterrorism approach toward Al-Qaeda, which was fire a, a few cruise missiles and call it a day, right? And so how did that work out? I mean, we should be able to learn at least from our most recent history. Yeah, talk about that. It doesn't. Yeah, talk about failing to learn the lessons of history, right? You mentioned Libya, right? Uh, You know, that was just the Rumsfeld strategy, basically. That was the light footprint strategy that was panned by by um, you know those uh, left of center, and it, it just you see this constantly, and we're watching these ideas be recycled and being talked out as being amazing, and they're all bad ideas that we just keep recycling because we don't have the will to actually do what needs done. Right. Well, this this is an important point to make. I mean, really, Bill. I mean, it is not a partisan issue, right? It's not. Absolutely not. Point at which you know this, the neo isolationists meet the meet the the, the you know the the, the right wing neo isolationists meet the the democratic retrenchers right and and I write about this pretty extensively in Battlegrounds is you know what is the what are the ideological origins of the of these movements and uh, and and really it has a lot to do with maybe those who are you know who have been captured 
by the new left interpretation of history, right? Who see, you know, all the ills of the world prior to 1945 as due to colonialism, all the ills of the world after 1945 as due to capitalist imperialism. It is it is a, a curriculum to which they've been subjected, you know, at our universities uh, in, in, in large measure, but is also infected, you know, secondary and even primary school education. It is a curriculum that 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 has a at least a a mild form of uh, of self-loathing, you know, that, that cuts through it, right? That that defines us as the problem, right? So, hey, if we're the problem, right? If it's not, you know, it's not the jihadist terrorists, they're not the problem, right? I mean, it's us, you know, they're only a problem because we're there. If we leave, everything will be fine, right? And so it is, it is, it is a, it is a, uh, an approach to the world that portrays itself as, as, as more humble, right? Um, when in fact it is profoundly arrogant because the assumption is that, that, only, that only we have, have agency over the future and that others, jihadist terrorists, you know, the Kim family regime in North Korea, the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps and the Supreme Leader in Iran, you fill in the blank. They, their, their aspirations are only in response to us. They have no aspirations of their own, right? And, and think about how arrogant that is. And then also, I think you have, you know, the, among the, among the, 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 uh, the, the, the we call that, by the way, the, the blame America firsters, by the way. Yeah. That's what they call it. Right. No, okay. Oh, yeah. That's exactly what it is. It's blame, yeah. it's blame America first. And hey, I'll tell you, the Shia at Ashura have nothing on, on us, man. I mean, we are, we are really proficient <laughs> at self flagellation. I mean, we do a great job of it. You know, it's it's figurative, but it's it's it is uh, it is uh, energetic self-flagellation. So so I you know I I think um, I, I think you have this other streak that is that is just hey withdraw to our shores right you know prioritize our, our, our ourselves and and you know some of this sentiment is, is understandable okay these are the sentiment is held by many Americans who were left behind by transitions in the global economy in the '90s and the early 2000s right this is this is a big portion of the of the of the pro uh, Donald Trump movement right for for example they're they're dissatisfied with their government and they see our foreign engagements as wasteful and, and tone deaf uh, to, to their needs and I'm talking about places like Dayton Ohio if you haven't seen that frontline documentary about what happened to Dayton in this period or or you know any any of the stories that George Packer tells in the book the unwinding you know if you, when you read that book it was you know pre-donald Trump but you can see the Trump movement in every page there as, as well, and especially the deep skepticism uh, about about economic policies, free trade, you know, and that gets and then that carries over right into, um, you know, and, and the way the Chinese Communist Party is taking advantage of us, right? Uh, you know, remember Ross Perot's speech about NAFTA and when he said talked about the great sucking sound, right? <laughs> about right. The, about NAFTA, hey man, he was right, but the sucking sound was to China. Right for for a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of jobs that left American companies and 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 workers behind, you know. So so there's this is this is born of I think this 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 streak of of mild self loathing, uh, as well as the deep dissatisfaction, right? Uh, deep dissatisfaction among uh, certain portions of our our our, our, uh, our country, and that's why you know that's why it takes leadership, right? It takes leadership to to, to talk to the American people. Um, to, to improve our strategic competence, and then again explain, hey, this is what's at stake. This is why, you know, the, this is why it's worth the cost in Afghanistan. Because hey, here's the cost of withdrawal. And and again, you know, the president made that argument. You know, Tom and, and Bill. I mean, you saw, you heard that argument in August of 2017 on South Asia. Uh, but of course, he's walked back from it. 
because a lot of the the people who are advocates for American withdrawal, of course, have been in his ear on this and and um, and and have, have been persuasive, right? You have this whole retrenchment movement that's extraordinarily well funded, right? There are these kind of pseudo think tanks popping up that mm-hmm. that that really masquerade as a, a realist school, but they're profoundly romantic and ideological, right? Because because they they see they see disengagement as an inherent good. Oh, they're they're hating on this podcast right now. Trust me, I know. We'll see some see some snarky nonsense after this goes up, uh, which is fine. I don't really care. Uh, you know, the the mute button on Twitter. By the way, I don't know if you're on Twitter, General, but the mute button really is the best feature of Twitter because it doesn't give the trolls the satisfaction of blocking them, so they don't get their little screenshot saying I was blocked, you know, and then they can play the victim card. If you just mute them, they don't know that you don't hear them. And you don't really care, you know. So it's a beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. So I, there's a bunch of Taliban apologists have been muted in my feed. They think they can rail against me, and I don't even have to see them. It's great. My daughters have drugged me into uh, into Twitter and Instagram. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm there now. <laughs> yeah. I, I find the, the best button is to just not to push it. I just don't go on. And I check in every now and then, make a point that I want to make, and then leave. And uh, that, I, feel, I find it keep my sanity. It's so toxic, you guys. I mean, it really – really and is. our enemies use it. Our enemies use it, right? What was the number one – policy, you know, point of policy advocacy for the Internet Research Agency by the Russians, right? So, of course, the main emphasis was on dividing us, right? Reducing our confidence in who we are as a people, pitting us against each other on issues of race. They had a lot of 9-11 trutherism, right? A lot of 9-11 trutherism. Right. Yeah, a lot, a lot of that. But then, but then yeah. also it was advocacy for America's withdrawal, withdrawal from the Middle East and withdrawal from Afghanistan. And that's what the that's what the you know the the Russian intelligence agencies were were pushing, and trying to magnify you know this this mantra of ending endless wars and and uh, because they they would lo- they would love to see us withdraw because uh, they they see it uh, as an opportunity to fill the void uh, once America disengages. Well, here, here's another issue for you, General. And this is let's this is sort of a you know I think is a question that's rooted in your own work, including dereliction of duty. So you just made the case for an ongoing commitment to Afghanistan. The problem is we don't hear anybody else making the ongoing case for commitment to Afghanistan. Certainly nobody in the U.S. military leadership. They've, um, you know, they, they've people don't realize that the U.S. military has had basically seven out of ten toes out of Afghanistan for a long time now. They haven't really wanted to, to be there, you know. Um, and you know, I mean, I, I don't see any, you know, generals or anybody else saying, you know, hey, we have an, we have an interest in preventing the Taliban and Al Qaeda from recapturing all of Afghanistan or much of it. I don't see anybody making that argument anywhere. Um, and so, you know, it, it's, you know, it's part of what I say about all this is that, you know, I, I mean, I could see the argument, but other than you and maybe a handful of other people here and there, I don't really see anybody else making it. What is, what's your thoughts on that in terms of, is, do you see it you see a failure in leadership now in terms of America and protecting Americans and American interests? Yeah. Hey, Tom, I, I, I do. And I, I think that, you know, when it, when it comes to matters of life and death, but we have to we have to speak the truth. Right? We have to you know we have to stick to, to facts and, and analysis. And I think what happens is you know there so much momentum gathers behind the drive to the end endless wars, and it sounds great, right? And you know there is the whole associated narrative of war weariness. You know, and hey, I, I didn't grow weary. You know, uh, fighting uh, for across these years, and 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 our soldiers, sailors, airmen, and marines haven't either. And you know, it's interesting that. You know, when when uh, you know, when when during the, this period of time before the president made the decision on South Asia, you know, I thought it was really important to give him access to to different perspectives. You know, President Trump is somebody, you know, he's a real estate developer and you know, he used to like to walk around and talk to 
you know, workers within within his you know within his properties and so forth and get a sense from on the ground. So, you know, I, I called up General Dunford and, and he was chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And I said, hey, can you just get some of our soldiers, non-commissioned officers, junior officers, you know, who know Afghanistan well, have been there for multiple times, to just come over to the White House and just have a converse, unstructured conversation with the president. And, 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 the, and the vice president was there initially. And so they came over. We did it in the Roosevelt Room. You know, it was covered. You know, it's in the, it's all in the press, you know, and uh, the, the substance of the conversation wasn't really covered very well. And, and uh, at, at one point, you know, the president asked the, asked the soldier, he goes, hey, aren't you like tired of being there? And, you know, don't you just want to stop, you know, going over there all the time and fighting in Afghanistan? And, and, and a sergeant, you know, looked at the president straight in the eye and he said, you know what? Uh, I, I want to go back. Uh, I can't wait to get back. Uh, and the reason I want to get back is because I want to finish this job so that so that my son or grandson doesn't have to come back here. Right. And because he realized that, you know, unless we unless we defeat these enemies, in this case, that means to, to convincing the Taliban they cannot accomplish their objectives through the use of force. It also entails hardening and strengthening Afghanistan against the regenerative capacity of the Taliban, which lies mainly across the border in Pakistan. But this, you know, this sergeant who's, who's you know, spent at least a third of his time, uh, you know, for, for many years uh, in Afghanistan, um, asked the president to, you know, to, to allow us to fight, allow them to fight more effectively uh, and, and to uh, and to complete their mission so that their children or grandchildren didn't have to go back. I think that's sadly the situation we're in now is that we're going to have to, you know, we, we're going to have to go back at, at, some, at some point at a much higher cost. And, you know, again, this isn't a theoretical case either. You know what? What happened in December 2011? After you know, after Vice President Biden said thank you for allowing me to end this goddamn war in Iraq, right? Is that is that then we have the rise of ISIS and and then a, then a much more costly campaign against ISIS than than it would have cost uh, to just to sustain not just our military but our diplomatic efforts in Iraq. You know, before we move on from Afghanistan, because uh, I just want to ask you a, a little bit about great power competition, some of the other points in your book, and that. Um, you know, one of the issues that um, has been the most triggering throughout the career for Bill and, and, and myself in terms of our writing is when, you know, we have just, we expose basic facts about the Taliban's ongoing alliance with Al-Qaeda. And there are an awful lot of people that have wanted to downplay that or or, or dismiss that through the years. Um, and, you know, obviously the whole U.S. deal with the Taliban, which was signed in February of this year, uh, enshrine these so-called counterterrorism assurances for the Taliban. We've been very critical of that because there are no enforcement or verification mechanisms. Uh, there's no evidence that the Taliban has done anything, uh, taken any action against al-Qaeda anywhere in the country. Meanwhile, the Afghan government, our punitive ally, who we seem to be uh, wanting to leave behind, um, has been fighting al-Qaeda in various places. They just killed Osama Abdul Rauf, who was the media chief for al-Qaeda in a Taliban-controlled village. Um, you know, nearly eight months after the State Department signed off on the Taliban's supposed counterterrorism assurances. I was just wondering, you know, throughout your time, you were you were at the pinnacle of the U.S. government, your national security advisor. Um, you know, what do you make of this? Did you see any evidence that the Taliban was willing to betray al-Qaeda or wasn't, you know, you know, you must have come across this sort of paradigm for understanding the Taliban, which plays, you know, you and I have talked about this called, I call it disconnected dots, right? There's this, this, there's sort of this, game that people play where they want they they want to see America out of Afghanistan and the way they see out of that is by defining the Taliban as something other than al-Qaeda's allies so that if we do that if we define the Taliban down and play disconnect the dots that in their minds justifies the whole thing basically leaving you know yeah. 
Right. Well, you know, if you don't like the enemy you have, just just invent a new one. Right. right. That's what we've done. Right. And it's it's complete. It's complete self delusion. You know, I, I mean, the the first time that I asked for you know a paper on on uh, on a South Asia strategy, um, I wrote across the top of it. Did we outsource this to the Taliban? And, and what has what had occurred? I think. In, in departments and agencies across our government is, is kind of a strange form of Stockholm syndrome where they bought into this a whole, you know, a whole false narrative, you know, that, gosh, you know, in 2001, we really missed a great opportunity, you know, for, you know, for a, a peace agreement or power sharing agreement with the Taliban, you know, hey, what, what we really need to do is enter into to power sharing with them because, you know, they're, they're a legitimate, you know, a legitimate entity within, within Afghanistan. Well, maybe maybe a legitimate entity for entity for about five percent of the population. But what we've done is we've partnered with that five percent against the ninety-five percent of the of the population, and, and empowered them in a way that they could only dream of uh, the, the, themselves. Uh, on our, and, and and you know, uh, we've talked about this before. I mean, I my my point of view in, over the last couple of years is, hey, if it's our goal just to leave, just leave. You know, yeah. don't, don't empower, right. don't empower right. the Taliban on, on your way out. And, yeah. you know, hey, what does what does power sharing with the Taliban look like? I mean, that's what is that's mass executions in the soccer stadium every other Saturday, I guess. Is that every other girls school is bulldozed? You know, maybe maybe only every, every other maternity hospital, uh, you know, is 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 uh, is, uh, is attacked. Uh, with the Taliban killing infants and, and, and pregnant mothers. I mean, this is who we're talking about here, not a group that's going to now impose some some benevolent or mild form of Sharia, right? I mean, this is a group that is determined uh, to extinguish uh, freedoms and, and any and any uh, human rights uh, inside of Afghanistan. Well, you know, the argument you just you say we were exposed to, that there was some political reconciliation, you know, uh, that was achievable in 2001, 2002, that the evidence for that is really non-existent. I mean, it's based it's based on a few very dubious sources. I mean, we can you can debunk that pretty easily. And I mean, the truth of the matter is that those people have to ignore what Mullah Omar said, the head of the Taliban. You have to ignore what the actual decision makers in the Taliban have said consistently throughout the whole years and study their behavior. And you talked about political goals earlier. The Taliban has been consistent in their number one political goal, which is the reinstitution, the resurrection of the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. You know, that's they have a clear political goal. And, you know, basically before we recorded this podcast, you can see even in recent days, the Taliban spokesman you know, recorded an interview in which he said, yeah, the Islamic Emirate is what we're all about. I mean, they, they've made this over and over again. They've made this clear. Now, I got to ask you a question, and maybe this is a little inside baseball for the, administ- for the administration you served in. But, you know, this is where Bill and I sort of – and we agree. We, we've argued too that if we want to just get out, just get out. You don't have to power the, empower the Taliban. But, you know, again, here to speaking to failures of American leadership, um, you know, I've seen senior American officials basically pretend that the Taliban has a political goal other than the resurrecting Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. You know, listen, General Mattis, when he was secretary of defense, you know, he he looked at a letter, the statement that was put out by Habatullah Akhundzada, the, the emir of the Taliban, and he said that, that Habatullah uh, laid out a clear peace plan for Afghanistan. Bill and I looked at that statement, which they translated in English for us. So we didn't even have to even get a Pashtun translator. We could translate from Arabic if we had to ourselves, but we couldn't, you know, we didn't even have to translate it. They put it out in English. There was no hint in that statement of a peace plan. None. It was just basically preparing for victory. And I guess that's sort of the problem we face in all this, right? Is that if the American leadership just basically refuses to identify the Taliban's political goals and understand what they're about in Afghanistan, then basically, I mean, the game's up, right? 
Yeah, I you know this this is a story for another day, <laughs> maybe yeah. one day. Um, but it was much harder than than it had to be uh, to redesignate the Taliban as an enemy force, right? Uh, that should have been done, I think, on you know the you know the the day after you know President Trump was signed was sworn in in, in 2017, and and that resistance you know came from the departments and and, and the agencies. Uh, it didn't come from the president and and. Um, now I'll just I'll just stop there, but I, but I, I think what ha- what happened is it was it was you know a brazen case of of, of self delusion, and, and what's so disappointing is it's all come back right. It's it, all all those you know all those flawed assumptions about the nature of the enemy have all been resurrected, even with I mean just the the, the most egregious actions of the enemy ongoing like just within the last twenty four hours right, and and we're still in, in denial about it, and and you know what what really bothers me is you know we have. I think a, a lot of uh, a lot of non-governmental organizations, uh, advocacy groups that, that care deeply uh, about human rights. Um, where where are they? You know, wh- why aren't they loudly condemning? You know, this so-called peace agreement uh, with, with with the Taliban. Um, you know, I, I just think that that it, that you know, I guess when you know when when um, you know the perpetrators of of the violations of, of human rights, you know, are an egregious enemy like the Taliban, they get a free ride. I, I don't are they just misunderstood, you know, people who ought to be, you know, welcomed into a parachuting agreements. I just, it's just, it, it is absolutely, uh, you know, for me, uh, impossible to understand. Tom and I joke about this, but I'm, every time we say it, I, I, it's less of a joke. I think all of the Taliban revisionist historians and apologists, um, those who have pushed this peace deal should be forced to live in Kabul so they could witness the the pleasures of the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan and um, for firsthand. Right. And, and again, you know, guys, obviously it's not a theoretical case. Right. right. I mean, they ruled Afghanistan from 96 to 2001 and made it a living hell. Right. And so uh, it's just it, it, again, this goes back to our what we've been discussing is our, is our inability to learn even from our most recent historical experience. Do, do you see a way around this? Like, how do we overcome this? You know, I think it's education. I think it's education. And and uh, and you know the, the, to help the American people understand better the nature of the challenges we're facing. This is the whole purpose of of writing battlegrounds, right? Is because I think the only way out of this is that the American people have to demand a better foreign policy. It, we we have to demand it because it's it's not certainly not happening naturally. Uh, it, it's undercut, you know, by you know by the by the retrenchment movement as well as the neo isolationist movement. It cuts across both political parties. I think that we are bound, you know, now for a period of, of introspection after the triple crisis of, you know, the pandemic and the recession and the social and racial divisions laid bare by George Floyd's murder and the protests and violence after and the vitriolic partisan season that we are in the still in the midst, in the midst of. Right. I mean, we're we're, we're going to have a period of introspection. But of course, the point I'm trying to make in Battlegrounds is hey, none of these challenges are going away. They're not going to go away. And if we learn anything from covid, we should learn that. Threats to us that develop overseas can only be dealt with uh, at an exorbitant price once they reach our shores. Right? It's it's much better, obviously, in the case of a pandemic, to contain it close to its origins before it gets here. Right? And I think the same can be said of jihadist terrorist organizations who want who, who want to commit mass murder against us. So let's get into a little bit about uh, COVID in the era. I mean, we've already taken up a lot of your time, but, you know, we, I knew Afghanistan was going to eat up a lot of time. And again, there's all sorts of triggering going on. But uh, the when it comes to, you know, your time as National Security Advisor, um, 
you know, you, you tried to shepherd the government. Obviously, there were there are already currents in the Defense Department, State Department, elsewhere to focus on great power competition, the rising challenges of China and Russia. Um, you deal with this quite a bit in battlegrounds. Uh, you know, and sort of how those approaches approach national security threats to and, and threats to our interests around the globe. And maybe talk a little bit about sort of the situation you found yourself in in 2017, where you now, you know, it's the post 9-11 era was dominated by, you know, Afghanistan and then Iraq and sort of the, the efforts to fight the jihadis. And now you find yourself in 2017, basically, you know, the U.S. had already largely pivot away from large-scale counterinsurgency against the jihadis. That, that, that game was basically already over. But you still had an ongoing commitment to contain or to disrupt the jihadis, but you had to worry about these bigger sort of rivals now, near-peer near competitors. Maybe talk a little about the balancing act you found yourself in. Yeah, what, what, what I found is that you know, we definitely needed to administer a corrective to, uh, to the assumptions that, you know, that great power competition was a relic of the, of the past and and and, uh, and and to compete more effectively with with both China and, and Russia, but what I didn't maybe fully anticipate is the way, the degree to which some people would seize on this as kind of an emotional cathartic to leave behind the frustrations of uh, of the wars that we were already engaged in, and to try to just say, okay, well, this is a reason to disengage from ongoing conflicts uh, that, that are that are that, that are high stakes as well, right? And. And, you know, I think if, if you are a, a great power like the United States and you have global interests, you know, when your security is at threat, you have to be able to do more than one thing at a time. And, and uh, you know, our true commitments, as you mentioned, Tom, have gone down to, to very small numbers, you know, in, uh, in Iraq and Syria, as in, one, in, that, in that case, um, you know, across Africa, mainly with al-Shabaab, but also uh, a very small contingent in the Sahel region of Africa, Maybe it mainly enabling coalition partners in the French in particular, uh, and then and then uh, and then of course in in, uh, in Afghanistan, these numbers are, are minuscule uh, compared to to historical uh, levels of commitment in those areas. But just abroad, uh, generally, I think most Americans would be surprised that 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 uh, our armed forces have fewer soldiers positioned overseas today uh, than we have had at any time. Uh, since the since the end of World War II, right? So, uh, so anyway, it's, it was a sustainable level, but there were those who were making the argument that hey, well, for us to compete with China, we have to get completely out of the Middle East. And well, you know, actually, the Middle East is an arena of competition that is important to to our security, but it also it also is an arena of competition in the area of great power competition as well, right? And 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 what you do when you say I'm disengaging from a place is you are able to uh, enable others to, to fill really what is a psychological void. So by continuing to say, hey, we're leaving the Middle East, we're leaving the Middle East, we're leaving the Middle East, or we're leaving Afghanistan, what that's done is it, cre- it created an opportunity for Putin uh, to, 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 pur- to, to pursue his goal of restoring Russia to national greatness by, by, by really um, playing the role both of arsonist and firemen uh, in the Middle East, by enabling Assad's serial episodes of mass homicide uh, that, that are the Syrian civil war. Uh, and then and then to, to portray himself to to Gulf states and to the Israelis as, hey, hey, just work with me. You know, let's guarantee Assad in power and, a, and in a post-civil war Syria, guarantee Russian interests here, and I'll work over time to diminish Iranian interests. Well, it's a big lie, right? It's a lie because Assad is more reliant on the Iranians than he is on the, on the Russians. And and lying and the other reason is lying is just what Putin does all the time, right? He just doesn't. He never tells the truth anyway. And so, but he gets away with it. He gets away with it because we just keep saying, "Hey, we're leaving," and actually, we don't even leave. We just keep saying it, right? So we are still engaged 
uh, to to a certain extent anyway with the Syrian Defense Forces and in, in in eastern Syria, an important mission in connection with ensuring the enduring defeat of ISIS, but also to, to hold on to territory, territory that is that really comprises about 60 to 70 percent of Syria's oil reserves, oil reserves that guess who needs Russia you know, and Assad uh, and, and the Iranians to reconstruct the country that they helped to destroy. Right. So we shouldn't give that to them because, you know what that is? That's political leverage. It's also it's also terrain that helps impede uh, the, the Iranians effort to, to establish a, a land bridge, you know, to to the Mediterranean. And and, and our, our efforts are important in Iraq as well, because we and we want an Iraq that is stable and not aligned with with Iran. And our presence there gives us a degree of influence. And it, it also it also gives some Iraqis who also don't want Iraq aligned with Iran, which is the vast majority. It gives them the ability to say no to the Iranians on, on certain topics. And, you know, I mean, talk about a hard job to have. I mean, how'd you like to be Mustafa Okadami, you know, the prime minister of Iraq? It's a pretty bleak situation. Uh, but by disengaging, it, 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 this is, again, another example of a situation that gets worse. It gets worse in connection with empowering Iran across the region uh, and gets worse uh, in connection with not being able to ensure the enduring defeat of ISIS. So you get, you know, you're going to get what then would be Al Qaeda 3.0, Al Qaeda in Iraq 3.0, you know, whatever the next uh, version is is going to be after ISIS. So again, it's it's a it's a, it's a relatively small commitment uh, in in, in uh, military commitment uh, as as well as in in cost, right, uh, in, in financial cost. And of course, it, it is it's you know when you consider the cost of disengagement, you know it. it it looks like you know, kind of a form of an insurance policy as well. Yeah, we're here with uh, General McMaster, who's uh, been very gracious with his time on this episode of the podcast here. He's talking about his new book, Battlegrounds, and his time as National Security Advisor for President Trump. Um, Bill, you have anything else on Iraq or Syria before we ask just a couple of other short questions on great power competition, some of the other things in his, in his book? Well, I I do. I have a lot of questions, Tom, but we're, we're we got to narrow them down. I know. We, yeah, so, yeah. So let's go on ahead. Let's go ahead. So, you know, General, one of, one of the things in your book that I was very uh, I, I found impressive was the intellectual honesty on how difficult some of these foreign policy challenges are that you don't actually necessarily know the answer. And one of them was on North Korea. And you have language in there. It was, it was fascinating to me because, you know, listen, we're involved in some of these debates in Washington, even though neither of us are, are based in Washington. We're involved in some of these debates. And it's it's interesting how often people are like, oh, I know all the answers and you just need to do this or that, you know, just, you know, and, and, and everything's going to be fine, you know. And I'm looking at the world and I'm thinking, you know, I don't know what the hell to do in a lot of cases. You know, I really don't. You know, I try and be, you know, policy agnostic as often as I can, just trying to figure out what's going on, you know. And, and, and you can tell that we have mixed thoughts about a lot of things, you know, mixed feelings about a lot of things. But when it comes to North Korea, you, you it was very interesting to me. You said that you were testing a theory, and you called it a theory, that the that Kim could be convinced to give up his nuclear development program, his nuclear arms program, uh, through sort of this maximum pressure campaign. Um, you didn't say that you, you knew that it could be done. You didn't say that you knew that there was a way to do this or that there was some easy policy set of policy solutions. I just was I just was curious. I, when I read that, I just was struck because. So often that sort of, um, I think, reservation or that note of uncertainty is missing in our policy debates uh, across the board. And I was wondering if you had any other sort of thoughts along those lines or, or where you see North Korea now going forward. Well, hey, thanks. This is a really important, I think, uh, aspect of policymaking and 
and and teeing up options, you know, for for the president, you know, is to is to be realistic about it, right? I mean, you you can't fall into this trap of optimism bias, right? That's a cognitive trap that's easy to fall into, or or confirmation bias, right? You have to, uh, as I mentioned, you know, really be clear about the assumptions that you're making, and, and and make those assumptions explicit, and continuously test those assumptions, right? If you're going to be if you're going to be honest, and so uh, with you know with uh, North Korea, you know, we made some assumptions. We we made some assumptions about you know what they want with the nuclear weapons, right? This is an important, this is an important assumption. A lot of people mirror image, you know, North Korea, and without recognizing the unique nature of the only hereditary communist dictatorship in the world, right? And Christopher, Christopher Hitchens used to call it a necrocracy. I think I think I'm probably butchering that, but basically because it was, you know. The idea was that uh, you know the the grandfather or the father I think is still technically the head of state or something like that in North Korea even though he's been dead for years you know so it's so this weird this weird thing where the Walking Dead are sort of technically still the rulers of North Korea you know and and they and they forged they they've come up with this you know kind of it seems like a wacky ideology but I mean when you're if you're subjected to generations of brainwashing you start to buy into it and that ideology is Juche ideology which is essentially a, a an ideology of of racial purity and superiority uh, in in which the deprivation of the 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 North Korean people is actually a sign of, of, of their superiority right? and, and, and their good fortune, I guess, as well. Uh, but it's it sounds crazy. But but but, you know, it is uh, uh, it's taken hold in the north. Uh, and and uh, and and Kim is driven. Uh, Kim Jong Un now is driven by, you know, a fear of losing, you know, the control control. And uh, and and also he's driven by the aspiration of unifying the peninsula under the red banner. And so where, when we look at North Korea, a lot of people say, oh, you know, they, they just wanted to deter us. Well, I mean, I, I don't think so, right? Every act of aggression since, you know, on the peninsula since June of 1950, when North Korea attacked, has been initiated by, by the North. And by the way, the North has tremendous deterrent capability, conventional deterrent capability, because of all the artillery tubes and rockets that are within the range of, of Seoul. So what does it need nuclear weapons for? I think it needs nuclear weapons for extortion, to extort us you know, off the peninsula as the first step in unifying the peninsula under the red banner. Um, and I think also, you know, it's important to recognize, I mean, you know, North Korea has never met a weapon it didn't try to sell to somebody, including their nuclear weapons program to Syria until the Israeli Defense Force bombed it in 2007. So what we said, OK, accept and deter, accept North Korea's nuclear power and deterring it. That does, that's not an option, right? I mean, I, I don't think that's an option for us. Others would say, well, let's repeat the failed pattern of, of previous efforts. Well, I don't think that makes sense either, right? That's, you know, that's that's paying off the North right away with the relaxation of sanctions, huge monetary payoffs and incentives just for the privilege of talking to them. And then what the North Koreans do is that they string out the negotiations. It's a bottom-up, frustrating, often so sometimes multinational process, right, that delivers a weak agreement after we give concession after concession. And then North Korea immediately- Sounds like the Taliban, the by the way. Sounds like the Taliban talks no, in Doha. It's, by it's the way. what we do with the yeah. Taliban too. Yeah, that's what you know. It's it's what diplomats do, right? They get diplomatic agreements, and what happens is they 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 they, uh, they mask and 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 define you know a political catastrophes, you know, as diplomatic triumphs, right? I mean, that's what I mean. It, it's it's crazy. That's what the that's what the Iran nuclear deal was as as well. So. You know, I, I just think that we have to test the thesis that we can convince Kim Jong Un that he's safer with out the weapons than he is with the weapons. 
and and that's uh, that's a maximum pressure campaign that involves economic sanctions, but it's also diplomatic and it's military. I mean, it you know this is what this is what really I think is 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 uh, poorly understood these days, is that strategic competence is about the integration of all elements of national power, not the use of, 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 of elements of national power disconnected from one another, right? That's what we did in Afghanistan for all these years, right? What we were doing militarily, it really did nothing to advance the diplomatic process. In fact, it cut against it, right? By not having the Taliban as a, as a, as a designated enemy, by you know, by giving them a free ride during negotiations. Uh, it's, same, it's the same thing, I think, in, in connection with North Korea, that North Korean regime, when it, I, I think for a time, Kim was convinced that we were preparing to, to impose denuclearization on the North without his cooperation. <laughs> well, that's good, because what that does is it provides an incentive, you know, for, for him to consider the fact that he may be safer without them than he is with them. So anyway, I, I think that's that's the argument in, in, in the book. I hope that that, you know, whoever comes in doesn't just go back to the same cycle, although I think that's probably what's going to happen. I mean, the biggest the biggest critiques you know, are funny. I mean, they they came from, you know, the people, the exact same people uh, that, that had experienced the failures of the past saying, hey, how come you're not doing what we did? Well, you know, it could, because it failed. That's why. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> what the other argument I see, I, I've, I've written only occasionally about this, but the other argument I see is and you write about this in the book, so it's good to address it here is. Well, just let the South Koreans lead the way, basically let them do what they want to do, uh, you know, and whatever their their policy desires are, because they're the ones that have to deal with it. And it's not really our issue anyway. We're sort of secondary to this. And you write a little bit about the South Korean sunshine policy of the past and how that didn't work. And I know you've developed good relationships with South Korean officials. And I was wondering if you had any insights in terms of their thinking now where this goes uh, forward, because just like with the strategy with Afghanistan, where there was a strategy announced in August of 2017 and then sort of abandoned more than one year later, the maximum pressure campaign against North Korea, I think it's very dubious that that's going to continue in any sort of, you know, holistic way at all, uh, maybe components of it, uh, but probably not. Uh, but be that as it may, what's, what do you think the South Koreans are thinking about this going forward now? Yeah. Well, you know, I, of course, they're watching developments in the north really closely. It's it's really hard to see, even from the vantage point, of South Korea just below the 38th parallel, what's going on in the north with the with the Kim family regime and his his, his behavior. It's always been erratic, but it's been pretty erratic, you know, in, in recent months. You know, the you know the blowing up of the building that was meant to, court, to be the coordination center between north and south, but then apologizing for you know for killing and then burning the body of a of a of a, a South Korean official who. You know who uh, who got you know, got lost kind of uh, uh, you know on the on the coast of, of North Korea, um, and then and then recently you know the the shedding of tears you know during during the the address he gave at the at the military uh, par- parade and you know, the guys disappeared for two three week periods uh, which are, is, is kind of unprecedented. Uh, there's rumors of you know binge buying in the north uh, you know and and uh, and I guess if you believe the regime there has not even been one case of COVID nineteen which of course is not true so. It's. I think it's a period of instability in the North. It's a period of instability, I think, that is heightened by the transition of leadership in the U.S., because typically what the regime does is, is it welcomes a new administration with a series of provocations uh, to, to try to get back to the failed pattern of previous efforts, right? To get back to, you know, getting the payoff, you know, from that. 
And uh, and so I, you know, I think that it's it's important that uh, the South and, and us stay as aligned as we can. Uh, you know, Moon Jae-in and his party, they are, you know, they are a left-leaning party that has, you know, has been, you know, sort of susceptible to this approach of of, of the sunshine policy. You know, his professed love, like <laughs> President Trump's, I guess, of Kim Jong-un has gone unrequited, you know, and, and uh, I guess the question is, you know, how, how often do you, you know, as you're going in for the big kiss, you know, and you get slapped in the face, you know, how long does it take you to realize, you know, maybe, you know, maybe you need to take another approach, right? So, so I, you know, I, I think, that that is a very dynamic time. Uh, what I would like to see is whoever comes into to office, you know, uh, if it's the Biden administration, that that they do continue the campaign of maximum pressure. We we have not ever tested the thesis. Those those unprecedented sanctions, thanks to Nikki Haley, you know, what she did, you know, incredible work to get through the U.S. Security Council. They've never been fully uh, they've never been fully implemented or enforced, and and this could really put a big constraint on the North. I mean, there's a reason why. North Korea is is the bigger the the most active uh, in the area of of cybercrime and ransomware is because now that's their main source of income right they've been shut down uh, in, in a lot of key areas you know coal exports for example other import uh, controls if China were to enforce them uh, could have a very significant effect you know I think for example under Article two of the of the, of the Constitution the president could order the interdiction. Uh, of vessels that that are you know that that are circumventing uh, U.S. Security Council resolutions, and we can probably do that in a multinational format. I think certainly the Japanese would be up for it. You know, we're we trying to get the South Koreans up for it, and maybe the the British and the French and Australians and others, you know, working together and invite the Chinese. Hey, help us out. You know, see what they say. But I think you know if if, if China isn't enforcing. Uh, the, the the sanctions that that how about secondary sanctions on Chinese banks how about that you know I mean I, I think you know I think there's a lot I mean there's a lot that could be done uh, to to continue to test the thesis that that has been left undone uh, and then uh, of course I think it's going to be very important to uh, to try to to heal the you know the the rift in the in the family between uh, South Korea and Japan uh, as, as well and I think with uh, you know uh, Prime Minister Suga coming in. You know, Prime Minister Abe, I mean, I love the guy. He was great. I mean, it, you know, his his whole government, I mean, we we worked so well together with them. You know, I, I mean, we would get together. There'd be nothing to talk about. We're like, because we're so aligned uh, on, on, on these issues. Uh, but but of course, you know, Prime Minister Abe, because of his father was and so forth, you know, he came with some baggage on, on the South Korea relationship. So I'm hoping that Prime Minister Suga and, and President Moon will get together uh, and will bury the hatchet. Recon, you know, recognize that they, that they have to work together in the future, uh, not just on the North Korea threat, but the China threat, right? What China wants to do is, is they, they want to co-opt uh, South Korea right in battlegrounds about how China pursues a strategy of co-option, coercion, and concealment. Hey, I mean, they are all over South Korea in this by trying to make uh, South Korea dependent on them economically, then using that dependence uh, for coercive power over South Korea. And to and to really force us off the peninsula as the first step in isolating their main regional uh, uh, competitor, which is Japan, right? So, you know, I, I think that we have to think a few moves ahead on all this and recognize what China's trying to do, how that relates to how China is dealing with with uh, South Korea, uh, and continue to test this thesis. You know that 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 Kim Jong Un could be convinced that he is is less safe with the weapons than he is without them. There's another passage in Battlegrounds where you say, convince also the Chinese and Russians that North Korea's nuclear program is not in their interest. It's not in the, the Chinese and Russians' interest to do that. 
And that gets to a point that um, requires sort of this integrated strategic thinking when it comes to cross cuts across all the different layers of the national security strategy that you shepherded in, in the Trump administration, which is that there is a tie-in between the so-called great power competition and the rogue state actors. And you have to understand those tie-ins if you're going to try and deal with the complex challenges that face us going forward here. And I was wondering if you what your thoughts are on, you know, how the Chinese and Russians are going to move forward here now. Uh, you know, there's uh, there's growing evidence that they have a partnership, obviously, between China and Russia. Um, you know, the great theory of, of relations was this idea that uh, going back to the Nixon administration, that you could basically play China off on the Soviet Union. There's a competing theory that the Chinese played us off the Soviet Union, uh, you know, and basically extract a lot of benefits from that over the years. Uh, but today, you know, Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping are, you know, best buddies. If you read the diplomatic traffic as we do, um, you know, what, do you, what what are your thoughts on where that goes in terms of how they see not just North Korea, but other issues going forward, the challenges for American power and, and, and interests and our allies and partnerships around the globe? You know, I think we had some initial success in, in, in convincing China that a nuclear on North Korea was not in, in, in their interest. And remember, this was at a time when when uh, Kim Jong-un was estranged from everyone, you know, including and maybe even especially Xi Jinping. Uh, and then and then, of course, the reason it's not in China's interest is because of the breakdown in the nonproliferation regime, you know, in, in, in Asia uh, in a way that could be a threat to China. I mean, I think conversations have to start in, in which probably likely start in Japan about Hey, do we need a nuclear deterrent, you know, separate from the American uh, nuclear umbrella? South Korea, you know, people forget years ago, had initiated a nuclear weapons program until the United States said, hey, what the hell are you guys doing? Yeah, don't do that. <laughs> you know, we and, and, uh, and you know, China should do the same thing with the North, actually. Uh, but, but what China does is they view uh, North Korea as part of their U.S. strategy. And that's a, that's a, that's a strategy to push us out of the Indo-Pacific region and establish exclusionary areas of primacy. Uh, and 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 create servile relationships with countries in the region that replicate the tributary system of, of Chinese empires, right? And that's what that's what really really what they want to do. You know, it sounds Doctor Evil esque, right? But it's exactly what they want to do. And and um, and so what we have to do is convince China that that the, the threat from you know from from the breakdown of the nonproliferation regime outweighs you know their concerns about losing the buffer state in, in the north. I think there there are ways to do that. There are ways to convince China. Uh, maybe to behave differently, but but we also have to recognize that they may they may not may not do it right, and it may it might take sanctions, secondary sanctions on Chinese banks, which could have a really devastating effect, I think, uh, on China at this time. You know, even as Wall Street is is rushing uh, to to pour uh, <laughs> U.S. investor money uh, into China uh, and to help them uh, pursue their 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 designs against us. I mean, it's it's really a sad situation. So, you know, I, I think that the competition with China does overlap with these other competitions, certainly, and they are interconnected. You know, to get to your, your point about, you know, Cold War diplomacy and really what was called triangular diplomacy at the time, uh, pioneered by, by Richard Nixon and, and, and Henry Kissinger. And that was the idea that we would have a closer relationship each with China and with then the Soviet Union than they had with each other, right? And, and this would you know, prevent any single power or authoritarian entity from gaining control of the Eurasian landmass. This goes back to, you know, geostrategic thinking of, of Mackinder and Spikeman, you know, and, and, um, and, and that was, you know, that made sense, right? That made sense, but it's, it's infeasible now. It's infeasible because of the degree to which Xi Jinping has consolidated power of the Chinese Communist Party. 
and the ideology that drives him and the aspirations that drive him. And it's impossible based on Vladimir Putin, you know, and, and, and his desire to drag us all down. Right. China has a grandiose strategies, you know, it's, that they're employing uh, against us, uh, you know, under under co-option, coercion and concealment. This includes military civil fusion made in China 2025, the one belt, one road. Uh, and and they're, they're very ambitious and, and aggressive internationally, economically, as well as from uh, you know, from the military perspective in the Indo-Pacific region in particular. But then Russia, you know, Russia doesn't have the resources. You know, they know they don't have the resources. So what they want to do is they want to drag us down. Right. Putin's theory of victory is to be the last man standing uh, as he wages a sustained campaign of what I call the battlegrounds again, some more alliteration uh, of disruption, disinformation and denial. Right. And. And, and what he wants to do, as we were talking about earlier, is, is divide us, weaken our confidence in who we are, uh, and pit us against each other. Well, General, thank you very much for joining us. We've had It's been our pleasure to have H.R. McMaster on the podcast this week. Our listeners will greatly enjoy this. Uh, we've kept you for an hour and a half. That's plenty. Of, that's too much time of your time, but we really appreciate it. We have at least an hour and a half of additional conversation we could record if we, if we, we could. But thank you again for joining us, General. We really appreciate it. Hey, th- hey, thanks so much, Bill. Thanks, Tom. Great to be with both of you guys. And thanks for the great work that you, you do on this podcast and, and with the Long War Journal. And thank you to our audience for listening again to this week's episode of Generation Jihad. Again, this has been H.R. McMaster on our 32nd episode already, Bill. That's pretty good. Uh, please do subscribe to the show. As a reminder, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere else you listen to your shows. And we will see you again next week.